what is freedom? We talk about this question and so many more on KUT's discussion show, Views and Brews, taped live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas. You can find the entire archive on the Views and Brews podcast. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining us for this Views and Brews podcast, recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas. We hope you enjoy the show. You know, I was I was kind of preparing an intro for this evening, and I was thinking, why is it so much fun to do this podcast? And it's, I look forward to recording these shows, to editing them, to putting them up, and I get to work with these incredible guys who are not only award-winning activists and thinkers, fantastic writers and journalists and just great people to be around, but they also write articles like, morals make people fat, and what the fuck happened to, oh, I actually said it, I was going to say F, (laughs) what the F happened to golden rice? (laughs) I wrote down F, I'm not, trying to keep money out of the swear jar. Anyway, so honestly, they are, they're hilarious and thoughtful and wonderful people, and it is such an honor, and I'm so lucky, and we're also lucky to have them here in Austin to talk tonight about the future of food. So welcome Raj Patel and Tom Philpott. Thank you. Um, so I, I get to do the, the kind of Ira Glass moment right now. It's each week, of course, we bring you a secret ingredient, and, uh, uh, and then we, we usually have a guest to talk about that secret ingredient. Um, this week's secret ingredient, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you may have pieced it together by listening on the radio to the promos here. You know, we're going to talk about GMOs and soil and uh, This week's secret ingredient is South by Southwest. Um, <laughs> And the reason, the reason we want to talk about South by Southwest is that, as many Austinites here will know, uh, we will soon be invaded by uh, a bevy of bright people who will come with their innovations about how it is that the world is going to be in the future. Um, and it's a particular kind of future. It's a future that is driven by the right kind of investment and smart thinking. Uh, no one who comes to South by Southwest is stupid. Everyone is smart. Uh, and, uh, the, and, and what we're really interested in talking about today is a certain kind of smart food, the kind of smart food that you will see uh, touted with, with the kind of thinking that you will hear uh, a great deal of in the weeks of South by Southwest. Uh, and so we thought that, you know, in the spirit of making ourselves unpopular, with almost everyone, uh, we would uh, we would do this week the secret ingredient South by Southwest, uh, but uh, not in a kind of South by Southwest you're all horrible kind of way, but but m- much more a kind of getting under the skin of South by Southwest. And what better way to do that um, than with this? Uh, th- for those of you at home, uh, I'm holding up a packet of Soylent. Um, now Soylent is. Uh, I mean, it embodies the spirit of South by Southwest perfectly. Uh, it, it was, it was, it was. It's a, it's a, it's a replacement food that was uh, invented by a, a young software engineer in in the uh, in, in the Bay Area, um, who was like many software engineers, really finding living in the Bay Area a struggle. I mean, everything's very expensive, uh, and contrary to everything you believe, not every software engineer ends up hired by Google and making billions. Uh, And so he was looking very rationally at at his life and trying to minimize on expenses, uh, and he realized that one of the big expenses was food. Uh, And and so he started replacing, this guy's name's Rob Reinhart, there's a fantastic portrait of him in The New Yorker. Uh, But the the story is that he starts engineering his food uh, and uh, gets to really what it is that every human body needs. And Soylent is the product of that. Now you you may think, Soylent, what a dumb, I mean, uh, it, it, everyone's here has uh, surely has seen Soylent Green. Um, uh, those of you who haven't, let me spoil it for you. Uh, Soylent Green is people. Uh, th- th- so the, the story of Soylent Green is all about how in the end we have overpopulation and everyone ends up eating, uh, humans eat the remains of dead humans. Um, but actually, Soylent was based on, a, on a, uh, an older, ni- uh, early, uh, sort of mid-60s novel called Make Room, Make Room. And in Make Room, Make Room, uh, there is vast overpopulation, and people realize that they can't just eat, uh, you know, uh, carry on eating what they're eating, and they need new food. And the new food they come up with is a mixture of soy and lentils, and it's called Soylent. Uh, and so that's what we're going to try for you this evening, um, and I, 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 yeah, well, so 
Tom and I are, are, are going to throw ourselves at the final stages of preparation for Soylent. We're going to try it, and then I'm going to argue the case for why Soylent is good while my mouth is still uh, stunned with the aftertaste. Um, so uh, I, I wonder, Tom, if you, if you mind being my assistant here. Sure thing. Let's do it, Rush. You know, um, while we're thinking about this, he's not the only person in the tech industry to get into food and the future of food. Like, Tom, you've written a lot about people in tech making food, 3D printing food, and things like that. What's going on with this? Right. Well, so Silicon Valley now is in this phase where it's looking at everything in the world that exists and asking the question, how can we disrupt this? So it's looking at these huge markets, like the food market, um, is worth over a trillion dollars in the United States. And it's based on land and labor. Um, it's about the biggest employer there is. There's people doing stuff like this all over the country. Uh, Raj is, for the, for the uh, radio audience, Raj is shaking the Soylent Green up right now. In a giant two-quart mason jar. And, um, and so they're looking at these sort of uh, industries, these kind of legacy indus industries, and asking... What can we do to streamline things and replace them? How can we take um, natural processes out? How can we remove labor from the process? Um, and so there's this big, and it's been going on for about 10 years, this sort of big fetish for disruption. And so the food industry is no different. Um, and, um, and, you know, at the same time, there's also this, uh, this idea uh, in Silicon Valley, it goes back a while, of solutionism. And that is that you define a problem, um, say some big ecological problem, and you figure out that maybe has really complex roots, and you figure out a very simple way that you can solve it. Um, and so th that kind of, uh, of, of spirit is very much driving uh, Silicon Valley, very much driving the kind of people that come to South by Southwest. And, and so food is a perfect kind of fertile ground for it because it's a big legacy industry that we all rely on uh, with a lot of money tied up into it and a lot of profit. And there's all kinds of ecological problems with it. And so um, venture capital is, in fact, uh, flowing into the space. Now, let me interrupt this real quick for us to have a dramatic tasting of and so this is this soil in here is a classic example of both solutionism and disruption it uh it says you know why should we go through all of this uh cooking and planting uh, sort of planting crops harvesting crops processing them cooking them when we can just do what raj just did when we can uh, break food down into its components uh reassemble it in a in a jar and drink it and, uh, and so it's going to disrupt all, all, it wants to disrupt all these processes, and then it's going to solve problems like not having enough time to, uh, to cook and things like that. So here we have a, a sort of perfect example. Um, and I want to note here about this, we were just looking at the ingredients. And what it basically is, is um, fat, uh, carbohydrates, and protein with essentially a vitamin pill crushed into it. Uh, what it doesn't have, which I'm uh, impressed by and I'm also terrified of, it doesn't have any flavoring. This is not vanilla Soylent or we coffee bourbon, flavored Chris. Soylent. This is straight generic, you know, straight, straight ahead Soylent, meaning that what we're about to, we're about to um, imbibe sort of a fluid that is supposed to contain, it's almost like drinking blood or something. It's like this uh, essential... Uh, th this is supposed to, you know, this is going to sustain, this is all we need to sustain us. Um, all we need to sustain us. Yeah, this is it. Yeah. We could drink, we could drink that amount, that quart, uh, each of us would need to drink that two quart jar a day to have everything we need in terms of calories, protein, fat, carbohydrates, and vitamins. Okay, so bottoms up? Bottom, well, I don't know about bottoms up. <laughs> uh, I'm squeamish about this kind of stuff. All right. If anybody this else... Is, we, are, we may have to spit. Uh, it's going to be disgusting if we do, but... Um, and just by a show of... Has anyone had this before? Yeah, a Give show of hands. We have a Soylent drinker in the back. There we go. Okay, right. let's do it. Oh, you know what it tastes like? It tastes like um, baby milk, like, but not breast milk. Oh. Like, <laughs> How do you know? Like formula. I've had both. <laughs> in fact, formula, it, what it, is Soylent besides just baby it, formula? It's, it's like baby formula. 
It's, it's not horrendous. No, it's not. I mean, it's, it's like someone else's breath in your mouth. Um, <laughs> oh, okay, it is horrendous. <laughs> Which isn't always the worst thing. Um, <laughs> it, um, you know, it tastes yeah, a little bit... Without the romance. Um, so it disgusting. tastes a little bit to me like it's someone gross. took some chalk and threw it in, into a Vitamix <laughs> with a little bit of water. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not okay. It's not it okay. Is, but it I, is the serum of life, though, right? It, well, so here's the case for uh, taking the vibrant joys and pleasures of eating with the seasons and tossing all that away and, and drinking liquefied chalk. Um, so we are living in a world of climate change and uh, we know that, that eating uh, meat, for example, has a huge carbon footprint and we know that it's not possible for everyone to afford to be able to eat with the seasons. Why not take all that away and have something that is vegan. I, I mean, this is this is vegan. This is good vegan for everyone. Aspires to be vegan. Come on, raise your hands if you don't want to be vegan. Um, I, I mean, there's some secret guilty part of you. Or everyone wants to be vegan. And this is it. This is the route. Um, and it's a way of uh, being sustainable. I mean, one day one can imagine this being made organically. Um, what's? I mean, it, it's important to take this seriously because th there is a world in which one could imagine everything that you need coming from this. And there's another argument, too, which Tom points out in one of his articles, which is that, you know, we're stuffing these animals full of nutrients and then letting them live for six months and puffing them up and then serving that as meat. So we're, instead of using animals as these test tubes to make food, why don't we just make it like this and remove the animal from it, right? Right. Um, Is anyone arguing against me here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, here, here's the thing. I mean, first of all, like a lot of tech solutions that get sort of prettied up and draw a bunch of venture capital and get, you know, articles in the, in the New Yorker and in the tech press. Um, this is something that really kind of already existed. It was baby formula. It is the sort of protein powder that you can get in the store. It's basically the protein powder or meal replacement you can get in the store without the banana flavoring or chocolate flavoring or, or coffee flavoring. So it's really kind of a gussied up or even stripped down but hyped up version of something that already exists. And the other thing, and I think this is one of, I think, the fundamental arguments against this kind of stuff is that this attempt to sort of identify the, the key substances for human nutrition that we need, the vitamins and minerals, the protein, carbohydrates, and fat, and uh, break them out of their natural, break them out of any kind of uh, whole food and sort of isolate them and then reassemble them, whether it's into a vitamin peel, uh, pill or other sort of uh, kind of uh, modern processed industrial foods, um, has never been able to provide a, a diet that has kept people healthy. There is no research that has ever, whenever people look at sort of healthy populations that have a decent lifespan that um, are free from chronic diseases and things like that, um, this kind of thing, this kind of you know, uber processed diet has, has never done well. There's never been a human population on this. And, I, and here in America, we are kind of the test case for that because you know, this is sort of the logical extension of the way we have been doing food for about a half century. And we've been veering away from that in more recent years, but that was really the dominant thrust of food that you could get a, a TV dinner that would have you know, a, a third of your vitamins, minerals, most of it added, um, and just be very easy to eat. And really not, not that much, much different from this, but it, it turns out that nutrition science has never figured out how to do that. The, the vitamin A in a carrot that your body absorbs, or the beta carotene in a carrot that your body absorbs, um, is not mimicked by a vitamin A pill. Um, what supplementation has been able to do is stop uh, diseases like blindness or scurvy for vitamin C. But beyond that, supplementation has never been able to do much for people. And so I feel like if we become sort of office drones working, um, you know, 20 hour days um, writing code using this as our nutrition, we'll be sacrificing a whole lot. And one of those things that we'll be sacrificing is, is health. But, but what's 
exciting about this is that they the, the Soylent is open source. I mean, they're, they're very open about the fact that yes, look, version zero point five was basically a recipe for flatulence. Uh, but 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 they iterated, right? And so you know, you, we're I think we're drinking version one point five, and there's now two point that's out. Um, and it's all open source, and there, there are forums. You know, there are entire chains of people on Reddit who drink this while while on Reddit, presumably. This, this, this sort of, uh, um, and. Uh, and 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 they're, they're they're saying well you know these are the effects and no it's true look the opposite of data is anecdote and and a lot of this is driven by anecdote right uh, we haven't we haven't had the. Um, the, the, the sort of mass trials, but that's also an argument for why you should do this. Look, I mean, the, the entire American food system is one big experiment, and why not see, you know, accept that you know, our corporate overlords have, have decided to dump all this crap on us and seize that and kind of do a jujitsu move and say, look, yeah, we're being experimented on, but now we are in charge of the experiment. And we will, I mean, you know, one of the ways that Rob Reinhart talks about how awesome this is, is like, and it's a really interesting moment where he's talking about, well, you know, I was a bit sluggish and, you know, I was tired all the time and then I gave up food and now I'm, you know, I can think straight. I notice that people are sluggish around me, whereas I have you know, visual acuity. And I, you know, it's almost like the sound from the $6 million man. You, you can almost hear him go, uh, you know, I, I can see you at the back um, using my eyes, uh, and and it, it, it's 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 a it, I mean th this idea of that the, the Ubermensch drinks Soylent um, is why not? I mean, if we're going to be experimented on, then this is one of the ways in which this kind of future nutrition is open about that, and it's like screw it, let's do it. And this is the point in the show where we all go, Raj, what is wrong with you, right? Well, <laughs> because, it is, because it assumes that we know how the body works. We know how the brain works. And yes, this is South by Southwest, and we are super duper duper smart, and we know so much, but we know so little, you know? And when we're tasting food, we're not only tasting it, well, first of all, this is like a ridiculous idea that we're actually going to taste this, and that's going to be pleasurable. But we forget that when we experience food, we're also experiencing culture. We're also experiencing um, love between people. We, we are experiencing so much more through food. And doesn't that matter in the future? In the future. But, but even now, I mean I, I mean, I was only joking to some extent where I'm talking about people on Reddit um, drinking this while being on Reddit. I mean, Reddit works because it's a community. It's a way of interacting with other people. It's a way of being with other people. Um, what's wrong with taking the, I mean, you know, w when you have young people on their Xboxes, those young people, uh, but, but you know, you're playing a game and you've got other people's voices in your ear and you're, you're having a whale of a time and you're blowing up God knows what and, uh, and you're, you're power munching on this or whatever it is, you, you've got your community. You've also got your visual, you, you know, you're surrounded by your senses, and this is just the fuel. What's wrong with that kind of community instead of, you know, sitting around a table and having some strange Italian food that you've never heard of and, uh, you know, just eating local with some crazy herb, whereas everyone can be just, sh you know, shooting this and, and popping drones. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't see anything wrong with that society myself. <laughs> <laughs> let me, you know, let me just raise raise a point that I mean, I think that we do have to be open to new ways that people interact in form communities and things like that. We can't be the old fogies saying, "Well, time was when I was young and we didn't do stuff like that." Um, but isn't there a pool that we have? Doesn't this leave us somehow cold when we when we sort of sit at our desk and fight on? Because I think well, what you they do, microwave it. What they mostly do on Reddit <laughs> is fight, right? Aren't they like having like flame wars and insulting each other? And I mean, uh, computer games can be can be incredibly. I I just see. Yeah, you're changing the subject. We're going from Reddit to computer games to. Well, I mean, I, I just I, I just have to say I, I I like computer games, and I I played one called That Dragon Cancer. Has, has anyone does anyone know that? It's an amazing game. Uh, I I was crying like a baby from the first to, to the end. It was two it's two hours long, and it's about a kid dying of cancer. It's just it's incredibly heartbreaking, um, and it's and th there's no shortage of affect there. Um, it's so I, I'm I'm not sure that 
you, I mean, I mean, these virtual worlds aren't just about things blowing up. I mean, you, you can you can experience some very deep, very real emotions. Um, I'm, and so, I, and, and it's possible to feel those emotions and shoot this food. So I, 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 right. I'm still I'm pushing you on and this. And so and so and so can can the experience of playing that game and feeling those emotions can that replace? Is that replacing sort of one-on-one -on -one interaction with people? And food, or is it just playing, replacing one-on-one -on -one with interaction with people? In other words, can you also do that and sort of have convivial, sort of old-school food and meals? Well, I mean, Rob Reinhardt doesn't think they're incompatible. I mean, for most of his life, he he has this, and occasionally when he wants to. Um have friends, uh, then, uh, well, no, I mean, you know, when there are occasions to socialize, you do that. But it's an opt-in thing rather than a must-do thing. Um, and, and, and that's kind of what South by Southwest is about, isn't it? It's about freedom. It's about liberty. Right. And it's about, I mean, it's about freeing up time and energy to, I mean, a, a part of it is really kind of an ultimate extension of the Protestant work ethic, right? Because it's about freeing up time and energy that you would be wasting sort of cooking and having dinner with people to get to get down to work, write more code, uh, things like that. And the the entertainment that you might have taken before out in the world at a Cactus Cafe event. Um, OK. Um, at a Cactus ca Cafe event might be spent playing video games or something. But um, I just lost my train of thought from that. Uh, that, <laughs> that well, it's interesting, though, because the thing is, is that I think that the idea of cooking in a way uh, and eating together, um, the pleasure has been taken out of it. You know, the pleasure of cooking. It's, it's almost as if it's something that we do and it's an extra burden for the woman. It's an extra burden for the household to have to cook. And I wonder if there's a way to instill a vocabulary that's based around the pleasure that we get from cooking, from using all of our senses, to being involved with food and that social experience. And so we can kind of understand that as part of what it is to be human. Well, you, you were talking about, uh, before we, we, we came on stage, about quite how many senses we have. And I was kind of surprised by, um, the, the number that you came up with, because I'm I'm used to five, uh, and f five senses seems plenty to me. And then I I, I was reading um, that there's a form of Chinese poetry called uh, the the seven sorrows. When 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 things go spectacularly wrong, um, the the kind of poetry that that involves is uh, the five senses plus bitterness and injustice. That, that you know that somehow we have a sense of bitterness and we have a sense of injustice. But you're talking about eleven senses. Well, you know, I mean. I'm no neurologist, <laughs> but uh, I, I do work with the neurology department here at UT every now and then, you know? And when I was having a conversation with them, this is so fascinating, so y'all should look this up, because what they were saying was that we have 11 senses that we know of. Like, <clears throat> if we're in a dark room, we know which way is up and down, that's a sense. We know when we feel full. We know when we're hungry, that's also a sense. Um, we know when we're tired. And all of these senses, and, and also, you know, I, I, and this is a views and brews, I think a couple years ago, I interviewed Steven Weinberg, and he was talking about a theory of everything. And I was like, well, that's fascinating. If we have a theory of everything, then we know what's going on, and blah, blah, blah. And he said, yeah, if we have a theory of everything, we still have no idea how the brain works. Which means that we have no idea how food is actually interacting with our body. And when we take away the nutrients from food and we you know, over oversimplify it, I guess, and just take away the essentials, we're also essentially taking that out of our brain. You know, and we're saying, like, these are the essential parts of our brain and our body, and we don't realize that there's so much more to how we're experiencing the world, and we have no idea how that works. So it's a little scary. Actually, it's a little scary to think that we can, we can um, create this um, superfood that will feed our entire system when we have no idea how our system actually works. Right. I think that's a really key point with this Soylent stuff that we don't know what we're losing when, when we pull these things out of their context. When we pull fat away from... Because nature doesn't really produce fat. It produces fat in the context of a plant or an animal that has other stuff along with it. And when we pull those things out and isolate them and, 
and recombine them with other um, things that have been deemed essential, we don't know what we're losing. But I also want to bring up a point that if we're going to be talking about sort of South by Southwest and the sort of tech bro idea of disruption and, um, and you know, innovation, disruption, um, solutionism, um, where is, and I think, you know, the, cause the other thing about food is that you can't abstract food from the larger economy, right? Uh, food exists in this whole political economy around us that, you know, we often talk about as if we could, we could take it and isolate it, but it's right there embedded in it. And where is this sort of techno, uh, techno optimistic uh, world leading us in terms of economics? Um, when in industries are disrupted and labor is, is pushed out, what happens to those people? Um, and you know we've we've uh, we've entered a phase in all of the Western economies uh, since the '70s where inequality has been growing at an accelerated pace, and there's been a big pushback on that. There's social movements in the United States. The Bernie Sanders campaign is one example of that. Uh, in Europe, Syriza in Greece, and and other other movements in in Europe that are, are pushing back against that. But where is this technology? business taking us, um, and even the, the, the food angle. I mean, is it going to end up, I mean, one, one logical way this could end up, and I've actually seen this in, in, uh, in literature about what tech is thinking about in food, that this, what we're drinking now, and kind of making fun of, and thinking of it this, as this kind of joke, this could be what poor people drink. This could end up being this brilliant solution to global hunger, that, um, that it, you know, we could be entering a world where there is an elite that gets to eat the uh, funny-sounding Italian food with the unusual herb um, and, and revel in it and get to experience these, these things that have been pleasurable for centuries and millennia. And then this vast class of people that are eating sort of denatured, recombined food. And so what do you think about that, Mr. Techno-Optimist? Is that, <laughs> is that what you want, Raj? Well, that's already happening. <laughs> that, I mean, that's okay. already happening. I mean, that's, the, the I just, is, that's you, our food system in the present. Yeah, in Amy, Amy Chambliss, the lovely Amy Chambliss, sent me an article in the Washington Post today that um, the SNAP program, this is legislation that the SNAP program is no longer going to allow people on SNAP to buy steak or seafood because that's an elite food and they shouldn't be able to buy it. You shouldn't be able to buy it if you're poor. And not only that, but look at, the look at the food in the prison system. I mean, we did a show on prison food, and they serve inmates equivalent to, like, a turd with enough nutrients in it. But it's called Nutri-Loaf. Nutri-Loaf yeah. is so, a solid form of this stuff. And it's like, much. okay, you break down, you give that, and that's what, that's what poor people, which, you know, our prison system, you could argue, is where we put poor people. Yeah, I mean, in fact... Neutraloaf, which is the solid form of this, maybe a little bit more disgusting, um, is almost considered and could be argued to be torture. It's given to people in solitary confinement, and the idea is to deprive them of the pleasure of eating. And so, in a, in a sense, this could be the future of prison food. I mean, the thing about it is, one thing we learned in our prison episode and that I've learned from researching school lunches is that budgets for these for food in these institutions in prisons and schools is so tiny that there's constant pressure to be always saving money to always be rationalizing uh, the the buying process and one could uh, envision a future where this becomes school food why not if it, if we're going to raise kids to play video games and whatever then maybe this is the perfect rule for them but, but but I think Rebecca's answer is right that that we already live in a, a food system that where good fair food to use the the terms of uh, of slow food is not available to people on uh, on minimum wage let alone a living wage uh, so uh, let, let me let me flip that on its head and say look if all right, we live in a vastly unjust food system. There's another solution that you like, I know you do, and I know that Rebecca does as well, and I do, which is fake meat. Um, I mean, that's one of the other answers to our, our 
conundrum around climate change and around um, you know, being able to eat in a way that has a very small carbon footprint uh, is to have fake meat. Why not have fake meat? All right, so th this is obviously, uh, you know, d the strange, milky, pus-like. Uh, by the way, we, we, we have a lot of these glasses here, so if anyone <laughs> wants to try them, and uh, if you're interested in question time, which we'll have very soon. They should uh, write your description on the, the yeah. strange, strange pus-like pus substance. Uh, <laughs> the future in copywriting for me. Um, but, but, but the thing is, I mean, if we are going to live in a world of climate change, Maybe this is a step too far, but what's wrong with fake meat? Now, by fake meat, do you mean... Synthetic meat. I don't mean ah, fake meat. I mean synthetic, synthetic meat. Okay. Lab-grown. Something right. like corn, for example. I was brought up on corn uh, because my, my, my mother was very excited to have you know, something, the, the good Hindu that she was, uh, you know, something that, that is not, uh, that doesn't involve the killing of animals, but kind of tastes like them. Uh, so corn, and corn, it's spelled Q-U-O-R-N. I think it says Q-O-R-N. Am I right? No, it's Q-U. Oh, there is Q. Okay. So in Britain, it was it was this there was this, this wondrous new product that that kind of tastes like chicken in the way that most things do, uh, and uh, and it, it's uh, it, it's a, a basically a sort of a strange derivation of mushroom uh, mycoprotein they called it, um, but uh, yeah it's it's kind of like a mushroom and it's obviously lighter on the on the ground than than actual meat production is and it's way more expensive and we felt good eating it, um, but what's wrong with that? So there is a thing called synthetic meat. Have, have you guys heard about it? It's, it's really one of these class. I'm sure there's going to be a panel on it at South by Southwest. It's one of these classic solutions. And the idea is that meat production is so ecologically devastating, especially when it's done on a massive sort of concentrated scale. It's all these ecological problems, all these social problems, uh, conditions in slaughterhouses for workers are awful. Uh, conditions for animals are awful. Um, it, Lots of greenhouse gases get emitted. So the idea is let's dispense with all of that and let's grow lab, let's grow meat tissue in giant factories. Let's, cult, let's take some pig or cow cells and culture them and grow them and synthesize meat. And this idea um, for these sort of Silicon Valley types has proven very powerful. Um, Serge Brenny, is that his name? Sergey Brenny, the, one of the founders of Google, um, uh, invested $330,000 in a synthetic meat project. And another one here in the US just got $2 million in venture capital funding. And it's getting all this publicity. And Bill Gates thinks it's a great idea. And, and to me, yeah, so I mean, because he's, <laughs> Such a smart guy. I mean, he stole that stuff from Apple and turned it into... Um, but anyway, um, but... And so it's, it's the kind of thing that sounds just like a no-brainer, right? Like, why do we want to go abusing a cow when we can just culture these, uh, these, these products in a lab? Well, the problem... There's a couple of problems with it. One is that it's still living flesh and tissue, and it requires, like everything else, it requires something like this to make it grow. And the only way they figured out how to do it is by using the, this is like, I, I, I can never wrap my head around this. The only way that, that scientifically they can make it uh, work is by using unborn cow fetus blood. It's called bovine growth serum. It's the blood that courses through the veins of unborn cows. And this is the solution that they need to grow it in. And it isn't just that it needs to be fed, but it's a muscle. And if you're going to create something like a steak or a pork chop, it's got to work. And so it, since it can't walk around, it's sitting in a vat, um, what you've got to do is you've got to get in there and sort of knead it. And so they mechanically, they, they lash it with this uh, <laughs> serum, and then they get in there and mechanically sort of kneaded and push it around and that requires a whole bunch of energy and so at this point it still costs something like eighteen thousand dollars a pound to to create this stuff <laughs> um and you know but these are tech bros and so they're going to figure out solutions to this and there's already a movement to and so did i already mention that bovine growth serum itself costs because it's not that common of a product um, it costs about, it's literally, it was $250 a, a kilo 
a couple of years ago, and I just read that it's now $560 a kilo. There's a, a run on the uh, bovine growth serum market. If anyone wants to buy, some, we should probably buy market. shares in it or something. Get it on our futures commodity market. But... Um, there's a bull market in cows. And so, and there's this, uh, there's a, <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. He's, he just got back from Rome. He's got <laughs> yeah. jet lag. So it. there's this other idea of, they're trying to figure out how to uh, make blue green algae become the, the, the feedstock for it. And blue green algae too, they've been trying to scale up for years and it itself is a couple hundred dollars a pound. And so they have all of these technological problems to, to fix before they can, it's, it's, so it's, it's one of these things that I predict, I'll make a prediction for the future. We're going to be hearing that this stuff is five years away for about the next 30 years. It's, one, it's in the category of things that will be perpetually just about to happen if this one more technical solution can be fixed. And, and here is my problem with it. If that is where the energy goes, if that's where policymakers are looking to the solution, if that's where the technology guys that have all the money to invest in things are looking for uh, as the sort of solution to the problem, then it's diverting energy and talent and ingenuity away from the real problems, uh, which are, you know, basically how to figuring out how to do agriculture um, on in a way that can feed a bunch of people and not destroy resources. And so it's one of those things that sort of it's this shiny object that you, that's you know, sort of always just out of reach that diverts people from thinking about the real issues. Um, and I will be, I will eat, I mean, I, I, you know, maybe in a couple of years we'll be on this stage and we'll be assembling some fake meat and, uh, and I'll just be wrong, but I would be really, really surprised if I am about that. Well, the question is though, the people who are producing it and want to mass distribute it, is the idea, can we feed a large portion, you know, uh, can we feed the world um, without f animals? Or is the question like, is there a market for this? I think that there, you know, there are big marketing questions because a lot of people are going to be like, I don't want to eat that. Um, there's a, a disgust factor with it. But I read a, um, a very kind of classic Wall Street Journal article about it just today. And, you know, they were, they were doing the math. They were saying that people spend about $180 billion a year on meat. And so that's the size of the market. And uh, an, an executive for one of these companies said that she thinks that within 20 years will be um, half of the, I think she said, I don't even think it's 20 years. I think that time horizon was a lot closer than that, that she believes that the majority of meat eaten in the United States will be lab grown. And so that is what they're looking at is that big pot of money. Um, and but I don't think any serious person who's not invested in it really believes that's going to happen. And, ma and maybe th this is going to be recorded and it'll be out there for a long time. And maybe I'll be being mocked in five years. But I, I, I do really doubt it. Why wait five years? Right. <laughs> Let's do it right now. Right. <laughs> No, but, but, I mean, if, if we're in the, the predictions business, which is where um, we, we, we thought we might end up, um, I, I mean, I, I, I actually agree with you. I mean, I, th I think that, 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 that this is, that there's something very dangerous about all this. Um, but I, I know what I want the food of the future actually to be. I want it to be tasty, ugly, green, and fair. Um, and, uh, I mean, What's wrong with this is that it tastes like ass. It's horrible, um, uh, and uh, I, I and I, I think you you do lose something by attenuating your your taste buds. I think you you, you lose part of what it is to be a human being in a, in a body. Um, I also think that the aesthetics around food are are, are things that we're, we're given as fixed. You know, when, when you hear about in the future we need to feed nine billion people, we need to grow seventy percent more food so that they can all eat like Americans and die young. Um, that I'm not down with that. I, I I think actually the way we eat at the moment is 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 wrong, and part of it is that we have a very sanitized view of food. Food so that it's okay for food to look like sort of off milk, uh, and we, we should get used to food being more complex. In particular, we should get used to food being ugly. Um, you know, the, the demand for perfectly spherical tomatoes, the taste of water and all the rest of it. I mean, yeah, we, we should get used to food being ugly and in season and be happy with that because we're, we're eating it with it, eating 
with more than just the sense of uh, a visual sense of this food, we, we have we have our eleven senses in play, and I think it needs to be fair and it needs to be more vegetarian. I mean, I, I think it's okay for us to eat less meat, and if you, you know, if you're going to go for it, enjoy it more. But here's the thing: before we we're going to open it up for questions, like in two minutes. But here's the question beforehand: so a lot of what we're hearing about the future of food is that wars will be fought over food because there's no food, there's not enough food to feed the world. Wars will be fought over water. You know, no longer oil, no longer land. It's going to be over food and water. And so when you have that type of fear and you have somebody coming in to say, oh, look, I can feed everybody with Soylent Green, how, you know, how do you respond with <laughs> this, that? This is regular Soylent, to be fair. Uh, Soylent white-ish. <laughs> we don't, we don't think it's people. Soylent it plus white. could yeah, be people, but it doesn't say so on the package. No, exactly. <laughs> So what's the response to that? What's the response to um, there's just not enough and we have to feed the world? Well, I mean, you look at the ingredient list on this thing and I mean, all, it's, it's pretty long, right? Um, it's this whole section of text right here. And all that stuff comes from somewhere. Um, it, isn't, it, it didn't materialize as this powder. Um, you know, the first ingredient, I find this to be just... Um, just odd. The, f the first ingredient is um, canola and sunflower oil powder. And so somewhere there's a canola field and a sunflower field that grew this stuff. So even this stuff isn't completely taking us off the land. And, you know, all the, the protein grew somewhere. I think it's soy protein and rice protein. And so it really, you know, it's not assuming away all the problems of agriculture. It's just sort of reassembling food, in a, reassembling its products in a more simple form. Yeah. Well, Rash, do you have a, no? Shall we open it up for questions? Jack, what do you think? You got a microphone back there, buddy? So how much of this, uh, I, I'm troubled by this by a number of reasons, but I'm sure the rest of us are, but how much of this is about averaging? So if you had a diet that, say, has one banana in it a week, how important is it to have the banana all at once rather than one one-seventh a banana? So how much of the nutritional value maybe is that we eat things in clumpy fashions and how much of it is, because if you take an average meal, it seems like, and you have the same meal every day, you, you get rid of variety, you get rid of threshold, I'll try it. He's coming up, folks. Let me do it. I have no fear. <laughs> First smells it to see if it's okay. <laughs> I would say this tastes like wallpaper paste, then you'd ask how I know. <laughs> but but uh, it, it does. <laughs> but, uh, it's, uh, yeah. Um, right, so, so how, so yeah, so like in a, in a kind of conventional food diet, you're not eating a seventh of a banana, uh, like a, a twelfth of a banana every hour, you're eating it in one clump and you're having different infusions of different kinds of foods, and with this, you're getting the same damn thing. I mean, imagine your day was just taking that jar down. That would be, I mean, the Reddit I fight. I look forward to I would have days. to be in a pretty damn good Reddit flame war to make me, <laughs> to make me want to do that. And I think that's, an, that's one of many questions about whether this is actually an optimal way to take in calories and, and food. I mean, no one we know is dying of scurvy. Um, people don't eat oranges every day, and yet we somehow manage to survive. And I think that, that there's... What this is is the kind of end game of what a lot of people have called nutritionism. Uh, the reduction of food to its basic elements and then the recombination of those elements in, back into what passes for food. Uh, and so your question is actually a very nutritionist kind of question, which is, well, how do I titrate the, in, the intake of my vitamins uh, and minerals Vitamins is how it's pronounced, and uh, uh, the, the, and uh, how you know uh, ought I to be taking these all at once, or can you give me some nutritional advice? And what's very interesting is we've we've kind of lapsed into that because we've had legions of nutritionists, and I am in fact a professor of nutrition, uh, and I, I, I am here to tell you uh, that there's, uh, I mean, the, the whole science of nutrition is based on some very interestingly dodgy foundations uh, uh, b because of the 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 way in which nutrition is invested 
invented at the same time as the baffled consumer is. Um, the, the origins of nutrition can be traced to, to the sort of 1700s when people are being assaulted with all kinds of food that they don't know what it is, and there's all sorts of advice around what to eat, and no one knows what the hell is going on. Uh, and that's, that began in the 1700s, and it was a quick, quick show of hands. Who here is confused about what to eat? Just raise your hands if, if you have ever experienced confusion about what to eat. My goodness, that's not nearly enough of you. Uh, I, mean, I mean, most Americans do experience that confusion. And in part, it's because of the overload of nutritional advice, the noise that we're surrounded by. And what this tries to do is solve that problem by telling you not to think about it. Um, in a sense, it adds to the noise by saying, look, here, here's a product that's going to help you just answer these questions so you don't have to worry your pretty little head about whether, you're, whether you have to get all your vitamin B12 today or whether you can skip a day or whether you have to have your banana or whatever it is. Um, and, and I think that that's worrisome because it just adds to this, this overload of noise. We're getting so much noise about what to eat that this is the end game. This is what it looks like when all of a sudden we have Reddit telling us, well, I, I, I turned up my B12 quotient and I feel like Superman. Uh, and uh, in, instead, I think you know, what we need to be doing is walking away from that nutritionism. But that means turning down the noise and that means walking away from this. And if you didn't raise your hand, have you ever asked yourself, are GMOs bad for me? Because I know that that is a huge question that everybody asks. They're like, are GMOs going to kill me? I don't know. Like, I'm scared to death. I don't know. Well, I mean, I guess we shouldn't have a discussion of the future of food without getting into that topic, right? But um, I don't know what Raj thinks about this, but I'll just briefly say what I think, and that is that the question of GMOs is another classic example of this idea of disruption. It, w it was that someone, it wasn't, didn't come from farmers, it didn't come from... Um, it, didn't, it didn't come from agricultural researchers. It didn't come from people in agricultural... Um, at the land-grant universities, what it came from was the chemical industry saying, how can we disrupt the agriculture market? Um, and the idea was that we're selling these inputs, we're selling these pesticides, and we're selling these herbicides and fertilizers, but we're not making any money off the seeds. Uh, the seeds are the, the sort of what's known um, in business circles, and this is a very dirty word, as a commodity business, meaning it's very low margin, that it's uh, low barriers to entry. Anyone can sort of get into it. It was a very dull business uh, for a long time. And of course, a lot of it was farmer driven. A lot of it was uh, farmers sharing seeds. And so the chemical in industry asked the question, how can we get into this market? Well, we've got to come up with some you know, gizmo that is going to um, make people pay us extra. And in fact, it's really the business is really a software model it's we're gonna uh, we're gonna sell you a we're gonna charge you a technology fee, which is actually what they call it, to bu to buy this seed, and um, and so just like I think just like Soylent, it doesn't GMOs don't. I mean, I'm getting away from the topic of whether they're gonna kill you, whether they're poisonous, but they don't really answer, or they at least so far haven't really answered the real questions that are dogging agriculture. Um, you know, they came into play in the United States in the mid-90s, and since then, um, you know, basically just a couple of different products, corn, soybeans, cotton, and a couple of different traits, they call them. And all of the problems around those kinds of agri in those particular commodities have intensified. Uh, soil erosion, uh, polluting of water. Uh, these are the real questions. How can we grow food without destroying soil? How can we grow food without fouling water? How can we grow nutritious food? None of these questions have been answered by GMOs. And in fact, in their sort of reign of the past 20 years, they've all gotten worse. Um, and so, you know, basically everything in the supermarket has GMO ingredients in it already right now. And people aren't dropping over dead from eating it. But so it's not it's not going to I don't think it's causing any, you know, uh, I don't think it's poisoning, poisoning us in any big way. But what it is doing is sort of poisoning the agriculture system overall 
and the power of these companies, because the companies that produce it are the pesticide and fertilizer companies, they are poisoning the political system with their donations and sort of creating this, uh, this environment where they, they have a lot of power. Um, it's an official part of US foreign policy to promote them in other countries, and so on and so forth. Go ahead, Rush. Super quick, so th three different kinds of answer. First of all, um, to ask the question, is this poisoning me, is, it's like when people ask about organic, you know, is organic better for you or, or, or not? Um, and there's evidence to suggest it might be, but actually the interesting question is, is it harming other people? I mean, the, the, the good reason to, to eat organic food is so that the workers who work in agriculture don't get killed by pesticides uh, and are not exposed to those and are not uh, prejudiced by them and that you know, we don't have kids of pesticide workers uh, or people working in, in fields where they're exposed to pesticides having seven IQ points fewer because their mothers were exposed at a critical period. Um, so already to ask the question, is it bad for me, is already to have slipped into this kind of nutritionism thing where it's like, well, I don't give a shit about anyone else. I'm, I'm really interested in the, you know, this food's you know, properties vis-a-vis uh, -vis my body. Um, but the, I mean, the, the second thing is, again, just to sort of riff on, on what you were saying, I, I was honored to be invited by the UT students at Energy Week uh, last week. And I, I spoke with, I moderated a panel on which um, the Monsanto Vice President for Global Regulatory Affairs was. Very nice name, his name is Ty something. Ty, very good man. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and he was talking about how, uh, GMO crops are a package. It's a package of the seeds and the pesticides, for example. And I pushed him on that and said, well, it's about seeds and pesticides and debt. I mean, because farmers in the United States work well when they're using GM crops because the great property of GM crops is that it allows farmers to get a second job. Uh, because the, the the food prices are so low, so it, and they are so in debt that they need extra work to be able to um, you know, to, to be able to, to feed their families. So GMO crops are you know to, you need to look at them in that political sphere. And then the third thing, of course, is is to, to actually look at the the toxicity studies. Very few of them have been done. Um, and the Seralini study, uh, which would be, you know, which I think is very interesting, uh, is, uh, you know, it, I mean, has showed some levels of toxicity. I think are, are sort of worrisome, um, but. But more than anything else, I mean, I, I do think this this idea of corporate control of our food system is is the big problem. Um, so it may or may not be toxic for you, but I, I think that you're asking the wrong kinds of question when you're worried about is it is it going to kill me? Because there are plenty of other things that it's affecting and it plays a part on. Beautiful. Another question. If we're if we're looking for the future of food and we're looking for something that's nutritionally dense and environmentally sustainable, resource efficient, economically viable, uh, that's not advocated for by chemical companies, that's being pushed by land grant universities, why aren't we talking about edible insects? It's the and insect I, question. It's so good to have you back. And I'm <laughs> glad to be back. And I would love to see a crowd poll of people who have either tried or or would be interested in trying edible insects. Tried them. I've tried them. Yes. I've tried the, the chocolate chip cookies, I think. Um, I think this is a, actually a very relevant question. Since we're discussing the future of food, um, you know, I think the, the case for it is pretty clear. You, uh, you have a gigantic CAFO. I write about animal agriculture all the time. And you've got a giant facility that you stuff 5,000... You stuff 5,000 pigs in or, you know, 40 or 50,000 chickens in and it causes all these problems. And then you've got all the waste. You've got the, the bones, the entrails and stuff that's not, that isn't eaten and that just becomes inefficient and generates all this waste that can't be dealt with. Um, and then you could s sort of scale it down to the level of the cricket. Is that the main um, bug that we're using? So the cricket as opposed to the pig and you can eat, consume 100% of it. And isn't it essentially 100% protein? It's a lot of protein? So, yeah. And so it is, you know, it's this, it, it is this very efficient thing. And, and, you know, this is possibly a way to disrupt the food industry that, and, and it's, there's some tech, you know, tech optimist aspects of it, but it's possibly a smart way to disrupt the food industry. Um, and I think it's something we should be thinking about. Food is very culturally determined. It has a very, you know, it's uh, our cultural relationship to food starts when we're probably in the womb and 
when we come out. And it's this very deep thing. And um, our family histories are deeply involved in it. And we're obviously a culture that hasn't eaten bugs in the past in this part of the world for, um, for, for quite a long time. And so I think it's, there are barriers to it, but it's worth thinking about. What do you think, Rush? Yeah, no, I mean, the, the stuff can change. I mean, quick show of hands. Hands up if you've eaten quinoa. Everyone's eating quinoa in the audience. Hands up if you've eaten quinoa 10 years ago. There you go. See, no, no. So, so, you know, I mean, that was like three or four hands for people at home. So, so you know, things can change. Um, and uh, yes, I mean, look, quinoa, when you first saw it, looked like a, you know, a, a kind of wormy kind of gravel, right? And, and, yet, and yet it was like, no, it is a superfood. If, if someone starts getting that ants are superfoods, uh, I, I think that, that, that uh, will go a long way. Of course, I, I've tried it and I, I broke out into hives because if you are allergic to shellfish, you are also allergic to, um, to insects, unfortunately, uh, which I, no one told me until I started blistering up and farting like a trooper. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> uh, but there we are. Um, but point being, uh, <laughs> and I hope that you don't have that reaction at home, uh, but the, the, it was, it was unpleasant for everyone. Uh, so, but, but yes, I mean, I, I do think that it's possible for our diets to change um, and uh, change with, with conscious effort. Another question? Um, I just wanted to say I did try some of the Soylent, and I understand why you had beers handy. A <laughs> um, couple of uh, questions. Uh, one is why don't they just add a flavor to it and make it more palatable? Um, you did bring up the issue of superfoods, and this is a kind of a get-by food. Um, the third thing is you didn't address uh, the problems of antibiotics. That's it. Wow. Oh, you, you should definitely talk about the antibiotics. And you definitely have to check out our podcast because those we we cover a lot of that stuff on the podcast, which is at thesecretingredient.org, which we're launching tonight, actually. But yay! But go ahead. Yeah, everyone, check out the, that website. Um, yeah. So I think the question of why they didn't flavor it. I think if they flavored it, then it just becomes another thing on the shelf for the grocery store. Like you can go to Whole Foods or HEB now and get a meal replacement powder that has all the protein you need with chocolate flavor. And I think that that sort of puts a lie to the project uh, that this is somehow innovative or new. Now, I think the antibiotic question is really critical in this sort of future of food idea. And I've actually been writing an article about that. Um, it's one of the reasons why I'm so tired right now. Um, and it turns out that globally, well, in, here in the United States, about 70% of antibiotics go into agriculture, go into promoting growth in animals, low daily doses of antibiotics make them, makes them grow faster, um, and also pre preventing uh, disease outbreaks in these extremely cramped and concentrated situations. Um, and this model of uh, meat production, which we innovated here in the 50s and 60s and 70s, has really taken over the world. It's uh, gotten huge in Brazil. It um, has, you know, lots of European countries have moved to systems like this. Um, in China um, is the most recent country rapidly, rapidly moving to industrialize meat production with massive, massive amounts of antibiotics. And it's contributing to this. Antibiotics are very, very fragile um, substances because what, what they are is they're natural. They're things that exist in nature that kill microbes, that people have discovered over the years and sort of isolated. Um, and microbes are in this, have been in this sort of constant war with them forever. And what you do, so what happens is that the, the antibiotic will kill some of the microbes, and some of them will survive, and they'll pass their genes on to the next generations. And that's been going on for as long as the world's been around. What, the way that we've been using them both in human medicine but even more in animal medicine has done, has taken that natural selection process and sped it way, way up. And so you've, you've got this very fragile medicine that I think is way overused in human medicine, but it's also the centerpiece of modern medicine. If you get into a car accident, 
Um, if you need surgery for some reason, um, there's all sorts of things that we need these things to be effective for, or this dramatic expansion in life expectancy, we're going to lose a good, a good part of. Um, things that would have killed us before antibiotics now are completely routine. So they are extremely important to the way we live now and the way we expect to live. And this use of them has um, put them under extreme pressure. And the United, in the United States now, there is finally, you know, and I should just say that in my article, I've been looking at how this idea that routine use in meat production, which uh, is dangerous and causes resistance, that's gotten very popular, people know about it now, um, isn't new. And when they started developing these, these drugs as growth promoters in the 50s, they already knew that. Um, and there was plenty of research in the UK and the United States. And the FDA was on the point of banning them in 1977. And it was about to happen. And Congress, uh, some meat industry friendly people in Congress intervened and put the kibosh on that program. And so for 40 years until now, we've had this ever increasing uh, reliance on antibiotics in agriculture and this steady decline of effectiveness in people. And now re antibiotic resistance kills 23,000 people a year in the United States. And that's more than AIDS, it's more than Parkinson's. Um, and so when we think about the future of food and we think about ramping up uh, meat production, that is, that is going to be a critical question going forward. And hey, maybe this test tube meat stuff is the way forward. I mean. It, I don't know, but if they could, you know, if they could possibly get it up to scale, um, which I seriously doubt, but yeah, I mean, so it's, it's, a, it's a crucial question to the future of food. Um, we have time for one last question and another a lot more, so, yep. Well, this is all fascinating. I own a restaurant in Austin and, and liquid diets are notorious for not being successful regardless of whether it's flavored with chocolate or not and then wondering like is this you know everything's kind of money derived regardless of you're gonna make a profit on it etc um, where does the slow I mean not necessarily slow food movement but where does the Vitamix with throwing in your whole orange and your head of cabbage and your spinach and all that. I mean, because this is derived from real things. You've already said that. Um, I, just, I just can't see someone sitting at their computer playing a computer game and not having something textural. You know, whether it's crickets or whether it's Cheetos. Um, and I'm sure you could make Cheeto-flavored crickets taste really good. Um, I, I really personally think that the future of food is not this artificially test tube, petri dish, meat product. Well, because I think that crickets really, I mean, I didn't even think about crickets until this gentleman over here mentioned it, but I, I mean, everything fried tastes good. I mean, if you just <laughs> bread it and deep fry it, I mean, there you go, you got cricket poppers and, and, <laughs> And that's awesome. Um, and so I don't really know that I have a question other than just me talking. Um, <laughs> but then also the, 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 the aspect of the elite versus the non-elite. I mean, I totally can see, and again, I don't think that it's a liquid diet that's gonna be feeding the poor, but I totally see how real spinach and, and and ultimately steak or something like that would be for the elite only and that you would be having some other type of porridge or... It's, it's really interesting how the way that a lot of development aid in, in the global south, in Africa, for example, um, 
is both augur for what happens here, but also happens at the same time as here. So one of the ways, for example, to be able to help people in emergency food situations is to have what, what are called sprinkles. Um, and sprinkles are the nutrition that, that's lacking in the food that, that's in, in, a, in a situation of complex emergency. Um, you, will add, you will have basically just cereals. You'll have um, uh, you know, uh, corn or occasionally wheat. And so then, then you'll, you'll add what it, and the term is sprinkles. And you sprinkle these damn things on, uh, on the food and people survive. And that's... I mean, the term that I and a few of my colleagues have coined for it is the idea of poverty with added vitamins, right? Poverty with added vitamins. And in a way, that's, of course, what we're moving towards here in the United States as well, when you have Diet Coke Plus, you know, that short-lived drink that was Diet Coke with added vitamins, right? It was, it was Coke's answer to uh, the, the crisis of nutrition in the United States as well. You know, you can have zero calories, but your full recommended daily allowance of vitamin B12 uh, by drinking this toxic substance that probably tastes worse than this, to be honest. Um, so I, I'm, I'm with you in thinking that that's, that's kind of where we're heading. But it also provides an answer. I mean, I, I love your idea of texture, of, of the way things feel. Um, to be able to push back at this idea of synthetic meat. I mean, I, I think that what troubles me about it um, and what, what, what we lose, what the sort of opportunity cost is uh, the idea of celebrating our protein coming from other sources, you know, vegetable sources, for example. Uh, and I, I think that we lose by the idea of sort of celebrating the meat industry and trying to, to, to have something that's a simulation of it because we can't have the real thing because it's plagued with antibiotics or there's blood on our hands or whatever it is, um, is that we there's a whole world of taste and texture that we we lose out on when we're trying to generate something that essentially tastes like a burger or tastes like chicken. Um, you know, I mean, that, that, that's the comedy line in The Matrix. You know, it, it tastes like chicken, but everything tastes like chicken. So how do you know that chicken tastes like chicken? You know, it, 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 there's, a whole, uh, there's a whole complex world of texture, taste, and sensation that we lose when we're trying to affect, you know, trying to sort of reclaim the affect of something that, we're, that, 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 we, that, that only the rich can have. Yeah. Anything, Tom? Well, just to add that we're, and when we lose that, we're not sure what else we're losing. Um, we have no idea what, what other aspects that we're losing. So. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, th this is such a fascinating conversation, and we'll continue this conversation as well. One thing we didn't get to talk about too much was food and ideology. So the way that we understand ourselves and our relationship to food is also really fascinating, and I think we'll, we'll continue that on more podcasts as well. But for now, thank you so much for coming out this evening. This has been a really wonderful night. And you know, Raj Patel, I didn't, I didn't really introduce them, I didn't give them their full glory at the beginning, but they're both incredible writers. And Raj has done amazing work you know, in, in activism and as an author, and he teaches at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. Tom is a writer for Mother Jones, and so please check out his articles. And go to thesecretingredient.org, check out the podcast, leave us a review, subscribe there, and, uh, and continue to come back to Views and Brews. Have a wonderful night. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. There is extra soylent if anyone wants it. Uh, we, we do have a mason jar that we need to empty. Thank you. You've been listening to A Views and Brews, recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas, for KUT Radio. You'll find a complete archive of all of our Views and Brews in the iTunes store, or go to KUT.org for more information. Thanks for listening. It is the season for sneezing. And if you need to curse, all you have to yell is, dim it. Real Texans want enchiladas. So let's all have a tipple of eggnog to wet our beaks. Any idea works for a poem. Send yours to the Texas Standard team and listen anytime on the Typewriter Rodeo podcast.